0: now we're all set up now let's start with the traditional bad singing of the opening theme song that never really fits quite well into the overarching podcast ready hello friends uh, sorry went through a tunnel went through a tunnel <laughs>
1: Excuse me. Welcome once again to, it's, it's quite going through a Tunnel, it's quite appropriate for for the book we're doing today. Welcome once again to Radio Moreport, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one book at a time, rating, reviewing, analysing, uh, discussing, rambling, and this week we're talking about TUD, hence our um, uh, pitiful jokes about Tunnels. This week your pitiful jokers are me, Colm, and my ever-loving co-host... Steve. Steve, who said something a bit early, but I'm sorry. <laughs> <Ever-looking gun laughs> different time zones. zones. Yeah, yeah. Are you sure it's twenty twenty one where you are.
0: I mean, 2021, 20, that's not a real year. We won't survive till then. Um, <laughs> too real. Too real. <laughs> too, oh, far too real. No, this is all about fantasy and escapism and that sort of thing. And as and murder uh, and religious
1: bigotry. And <laughs> you know, yeah,
0: I mean, got to keep it somewhat grounded, of course. And general racism. So today we are talking about Thud, as Colin said, the 34th novel and the 7th City Watch novel. And... Yeah, well, I suppose best off, we should have a general recounting of the story. This one features Samuel Vimes again, a personal favourite of both myself and Columns, one of our favourite characters. And actually, Column, I'll let you start it off now because you might have a better better memory then, of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it, it begins, we see tensions arising between the dwarves and the trolls, which we, we've saw in previous books. They have sort of long standing uh, uh, histories of fighting one another. Um, and a lot of uh, species, ethnic tensions between them. And it's coming up to Coombe Valley Day, which is the anniversary of a historic battle between the Dwarves and the Trolls, where uh, both sides insist the other side ambush them. Uh, and uh, the situation's getting particularly heat, heated by a, um, a Dwarf, Grag, which is sort of like a uh, kind of like a religious leader um, called Ham, uh, Ham Crusher who's Greg, Greg Hamcrusher. Yeah, yeah, and he's kind of stoking the the uh, flames of aggression between the dwarves and trolls by preaching some very kind of hate-filled, rabble-rousing rhetoric to a lot of impressionable young dwarves. Um, and Meanwhile, him and his fellow deep-downers, who are kind of like a, suppose, religious fundamentalist or cultural fundamentalist dwarves who uh, try to, to go above ground as, as little as possible, they're tunneling beneath Ankh-Morpork. And Sam Vimes has the added complication that uh, Lord Veterinary has saddled him with an inspector to kind of audit the watch and make sure that they're running efficiently and and as capably as they can. So where do we go from there, Steve?
0: So from there, uh, during that same meeting, we also find that he's being saddled with a vampire applicant to the City Watch which is something that has been touched upon several times before. I think I remember in Men at Arms when they first bring on a troll and a dwarf and a werewolf. I think Vimes has a moment where he says, but no matter what, I'll never take on a vampire. But considering the way the watch has evolved over the course of the previous few books, it seems like this is kind of the natural trajectory that eventually he was going to have to deal with this. I found myself uh, comparing this to uh, Captain Kirk and his general racism in Star Trek, like, you know, against what's the name of that species that he doesn't like um could have been could have been klingons i don't um <laughs> yeah, no is
1: it, is it in the jj J. abrams um one
0: no it's it's in the older movies I, I i don't not a big enough fan to remember i just remember that there was a thing there now, he is like got the traitor yeah <laughs> but i just remember that like uh they basically didn't paint him as a black uh completely perfect human being that he did have some underlying problematic views on certain cultures and this is kind of true of vimes as well because he is taking on a vampire he's not particularly happy about it but it's kind of being forced upon him because of the black ribbon society within ang morpork who are just insisting they want a representative uh, representative we want the vampires to be representative. I want a vampire representative within the watch because it's so culturally diverse within the city. So while this is happening, we, well, shortly after this, uh, while, during the interview, I believe it is, we discover Ham Crusher has been murdered. And this kicks off. All sorts of goings on because of the tensions that are already quite high because of Coombe Valley Day approaching. And then we switch over to knobs
1: and Colon because, Colin I'm going to let you take over there. There has been a theft at the uh, ankh Port Gallery and the theft is of a, a painting of Coombe Valley by Metodia Rascal, I think is the name of the painter. It's kind of like a like a panoramic painting, you know, very very long, much longer than it is tall, like almost like a tapestry. I, I was thinking the way, like in the, the the way it's described, depicting the the battle, and apparently it's been the subject of a a book called the the Valley Codex that claims that there's some kind of secret hidden within the painting. So it's been the subject of a lot of extra interest in the the uh, gallery. We're just about to build a special room to exhibit it. But the painting has been stolen and Colin and Nobby go to investigate. Colin initially comes to the conclusion that it's a troll who stole the painting because the top of it is cut off quite cleanly and evenly and the bottom is cut off quite roughly and he deducts this because trolls aren't particularly flexible and they couldn't bend down to yeah, to cut it very well. So they're investigating that. Colin tries to communicate this to Vimes but Vimes is just so overwhelmed with everything else that's going on that he doesn't time time to, to listen to him. Um, and everything else that's going on includes several officers, troll and dwarf officers from the watch resigning over the tensions, I suppose. There's very much this sense that they're, they're caught between their, uh, I keep reaching for real life words like, you know, cultural, ethnic identities, but uh, their species, cultural identities, and their identities as watchmen. You, the, the kind of the indication you get is that their family and friends and communities are, you know, saying you're on you're on our side or you're against us. They're resigning as as a matter of course. And Vimes is also dealing with A.E. Pessimal, who's the spectre sent by, by Lord Veterinary. So uh, Vimes, and uh, Vimes Angua and Sally, the, the vampire recruit, go to investigate the murder of Ham Crusher. In the, in the mines they, they meet, uh, the mines under Ankh-Morpark, they meet um, uh, Helm Cleaver, who's sort of like a, Uh, like like a pr man or a liaison with the surface world for the deep downers and then ardent who's another grag and he's kind of like the the only uh, real grag we 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 hear from and they they show them they they're insisting it's a troll that killed ham because there was a club found there but the crime scene seems very suspect and they're very um I suppose, like, very uh, uncooperative in letting Vimes, Angu, or Sally go any further into the mines. Vimes begins to disregard their advice. He ends up cutting his hand on a door, which later proves to be quite faithful. And eventually, despite causing all that fuss, they agree, the dwarves agree, that they'll let Carrot take on the investigation. Because even though he's uh, biologically human, he's culturally a dwarf, uh, and they they trust him. So then what happens from there?
0: Well, uh, just to take into account some of the minor subplots that are also happening around the same time. So for one thing, Nobby has a new girlfriend in the form of Tawny, who is an exotic dancer, and uh, apparently absolutely stunning. That uh, comes into play later. It doesn't really affect the main plot, but it does feature quite heavily. And also, crucially, Vime's is making it a point to get home every day at six o'clock in order to read a story to his newly born son on the basis that if you're late if you have a good excuse to be late you'll be late even with a bad excuse so he's basically saying there's no excuse for not coming home to read to his son which is kind of the beginning of uh, vimes really properly starting to delegate even though it's something that's really really difficult for him to do while all this is happening carrot investigates the body he uh, he brings angua and sally with him on the basis that angua can has such a good sense of smell and sally can see in the dark because he knows that he won't be able to examine it under proper lighting because it is a deep down dwarf tunnel basically angua discovers that there really was a troll down in the mine which is unfortunate news for vimes because he was sure that it was going to be a setup in order to allow for more tensions to be risen between the dwarves and the trolls and we discover later on that the troll in question was a troll named brick who is basically the Discworld equivalent of a drug addict he seems to be addicted to a ton of troll drugs uh including slab scrapes slice and slide <laughs> uh, <laughs> but while they're down there angu and sally also discover more bodies uh four five four 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 bodies isn't it i think it's four yeah four yeah. four more bodies in the mines and what do they discover about them colin
1: well uh, what well, they they discover those bodies i think when they're they're sort of investigating on their own time down a well yes, in yeah, a, a sort of a state in ankh that's on the one hand, quite in a quite posh, well-off area of what was built by uh, Bloody Super Johnson. So it sort of has M.C. MC Escher-style uh, geography to it, you know, where uh, the kitchen door of number four can lead into the bathroom of number ten. Down this well, yeah, they find the bodies of those dwarves, as you say, and they discover they were killed by dwarves. And one of them daubed a particularly significant symbol in his own blood on the door. This obviously stokes a, a huge amount of tension racketing up further between the uh, the uh, dwarves and the trolls in the city. It culminates around this time in On Coombe Valley Day. We have what what's, appears to be set up for for a massive riot between the dwarves and the trolls with the watch um, in the middle. Vimes has finally lost patience a pessimal and his dry clinical manner and his pedantic quests and inquiries. Um, kind of uh, basically... Recruits him as an auxiliary watchman to to take part in the, the crowd control during the riot. We also get a, a picture of a few of the other auxiliary watchmen during this time, like Andy Two Swords Hancock, who's a very over enthusiastic fella who works in the clacks, and Mr. Bogus from the thieves guild, and some others. But uh, Pestemal is is initially terrified, and um, all the watch are very worried that th- this could end badly. But volumes has we we didn't find out as that the plan of basically essentially spiking the drinks or offering more drink to both the trolls and dwarves. So they get way, way too pissed before the riot starts. And the riot as, as a consequence is a bit of a damp squib compared to what, compared to what people had been expecting. You know, there's a, a few scuffles, but uh, most of them are just too drunk to stand up at that point. Two the two injuries to Watchmen that occur during it is a brick takes a swing at Vimes and then A.E. Pessimal leaps on brick, I think, and attacks him to, to, to defend his commander. But neither of them were too seriously injured afterwards. A.E. Pessimal is won the respect of the rest of the Watch, and it transpires that he actually dreamed of being a, a Watchman, and Vimes agrees to recruit him, which in you know, a rather wonderful scene proves to be one of the very few things that gobsmacks uh, Lord Veterinary but they they begin speaking then to to brick and I think as at this point they find out that he was in the he, he was in the tunnel, but they also find out that he didn't kill the um the dwarf involved
0: yeah, it should be mentioned um before this happens and before Coom Valley day Vimes has a meeting with cro cryo cryophrase uh, Chryso-Phase. The- chrysophase the uh troll. Basically, Brescia leader, (laughs) not the mafia, the Brescia leader in the Pork Futures warehouse, a very shady kind of meeting altogether. Basically, he tells Vimes that uh, it wasn't a troll who killed the dwarf. He gives him some kind of hints towards places where he can find some troll drug leads, kind of just to show that he can trust him. Uh, vimes kind of takes this on board but he's also very careful not to take the bribe that he offers he because he offers vimes a fur coat in the pork futures warehouse vimes is very careful to throw this away and orders the try is to shoot it just to show that he can't be bought kind of emphasize that samuel vimes can't be bought he's straight as an arrow which is something that comes into play at the very end of the novel we also meet mr shine shortly after this Mr. Shine is the troll who brings Brick into the watch house. He's kind of cloaked in mystery. We don't know an awful lot about him, except for that the trolls kind of view him as a sort of troll god or troll king. It's not really clear which. And they get the confession out of Brick that he was indeed in the the tunnels, but because his mind is so addled with uh, troll drugs, he can't really remember what he did there, but he's quite certain that he didn't actually kill any dwarves, and he's also equally quite certain that he saw another dwarf kill Hamcrusher by hitting him on the head. After this, Vimes goes to meet Mr. Shine by getting uh, extracting a little bit of information out of Detritus, which isn't easy, but he manages anyway. And he goes to... Let me
1: see... Oh,
0: I'm trying to remember. Is it a? It's a. It's like a
1: club. Mr. Geology Shine. club. Yeah, yeah. Like a. a it's shop. like
0: some kind of geologist yeah. shop or something. And then they have this weird underground club behind the shop, which is basically a place where dwarves and trolls and even human beings can get together to play Thud, the uh, board game, which is basically
1: a recreation of Coombe Valley. So uh, where do we go from there, Colin? So. Uh, Mr. Shine explains to volumes his his philosophy that um, through playing to dwarves and trolls learn more about their cultures and learn to empathize with one another, and this then um, stops them from just falling into the same old roles of of warding rivals. Uh, Around this time, too, we meet Greg Bashfulson, who's a very non-traditionalist, progressive dwarf Greg, and he wants to help... uh, vimes out with the um solve this mystery but there's the impression with uh both uh, mr shine and Bashfulson that they're they know more than they're saying um around this time too the dwarf community leaders meet with vimes and it seems that they're just disgusted and distraught over the death of the dwarves in the the mines so uh, vimes has carrot and some of the other dwarves basically dig up that dig into that um well where Sally and and Angus found the bodies and he, he's very careful that it's all just dwarves doing it on their own time rather than it being seen as a, a watch thing. So at that point then the deep downers take the chance to they hightail it out of the uh, out of the city. They're, apparently we, we learn, we deduct from Brick that they've been the ones that have stolen the painting and that they've brought that with them. So Vimes meets up. What's your man's name who runs the gallery? Oh, um... God, what was his name? I have that written down here, hang on. Um, He speaks really poshly. (laughs) Galera. I don't have that. I thought I had it written down. In any any case, uh, Vimes meets up with him to ask him about the painting and try to figure out what the secret of the painting is. It transpires that, uh, oh yeah, sorry, around this point too, then the deep downers make an attempt on Vimes' life in his home when he's reading the story of young Sam. These essentially dwarfs of flamethrowers show up. Thankfully, their attempt isn't successful, but as consequence then Vimes takes his wife and son back to the watch house so that they can defend them there. Um, when, they're, when he's trying to figure out the secret of the painting, it transpires that Sybil's family used to own the painting and that she had done a project for it at school where she had kind of copied out a, like a miniature traced copy of it. So they use that copy to figure out what the the secret is. And it's basically that because the the gallery were just about to transfer it to a room that was completely circular. So you would be kind of in in the midst of the painting, as it were, in the way that apparently the artist wanted. It transpires that by doing that, then the the painting kind of gives you a particular location, like where the observer would be standing in the middle of this ring of mountains would allow you to pinpoint the location in Coombe Valley where this secret is. So Vimes realised that they've got to go to Coombe Valley and get there before the Deep Downers, but the Deep Downers already have a head start on them, so he goes to Mustrum Ridcully for some uh, help, who equips their coaches with they see magic that makes them really light and go really fast on the power of cabbages. <laughs> and mm-hmm. what what happens once they reach Coombe Valley?
0: So when they get to Coombe Valley, Sybil and young Sam insist on coming along, as do uh, Detritus, Brick, Cheery... Is that it? Carrot. And Bashfusson as well. Colin,
1: Nobby,
0: and yeah, and So when they arrive there, they're staying with one of uh, Sybil's old high school friends or whatever her name is, Bunty. And so when they get there, they start searching the valley, trying to find uh, the, secret, the secret of Coombe Valley. But Vimes basically has a bit of a fall, and he goes down this series of tunnels, waterfalls, this like kind of maze of tubes that basically leads him to basically leads him straight to the secret of Coom valley which is where the deep downers happen oh wait sorry it's not the deep downers is it is it it is um oh it is sorry yes it is the deep downer sorry and because it is coming up to six o'clock at this point and he knows that he needs to get home to read to young sam he kind of goes into a berserker rage where he's not really in full control of himself and he starts, he takes up an old axe that is found next to the body of a dwarf and he starts like screaming and shouting, asking, where's my cow? Is that my cow? No, it is a horse and screaming all this. And he's kind of like swinging and shouting like a man possessed. And eventually he manages to stop himself from killing anybody at the very last moment or at least hold himself back before Angua leaps onto his back and takes him to the ground. So when he comes through, comes to, he discovers that the low king uh, of dwarves has arrived at this point and he's somewhat taken them prisoner. It's very political. He is asking them that they don't leave, but he's not necessarily holding them against their will uh, in that kind of way. But he's also done it in such a way that he's put the trolls in chains in the hope that they will try to break out so that they can attack the trolls. There's a lot of that political agenda going on there as well. But when they arrive there, Vimes discovers the
1: secret of Coom Valley, which is, column. Uh It's a cube, what the, the dwarfs call a device with a capital D. And uh, it's, it's essentially a, a recording that was made at the original Coombe Valley meeting, where it reveals that the, the purpose of the meeting wasn't a battle, but peace talks between the then Mr. Shine, the Diamond um, King, and Brian Bloodaxe, the king of the dwarves and that in the the adverse weather conditions and the the mist and the flooding of Coombe Valley there was a lot of confusion and some of the more suspicious members of their party thought they were being attacked and the battle broke out as a consequence of that and we find calcified deep down in the mines the remains of a lot of the dwarves the trolls of the time including Mr. Shine and Brian Budax who were sort of calcified under the mine playing a game of Tud against one another so the Deep Downers basically, it, it transpires, rejected this because I suppose it it yeah, completely undercut Hayfield's filled mythology they've been relying on to preach this um dwarf superiority over troll and, and hate hatred for trolls. Ardent tries to attack Greg Bashfulson but uh, gets what's essentially like a karate chop in the throat <laughs> for his troubles. Okay. And they, they open up the Coombe Valley as the... um for other dwarves and trolls to see, to come down and see the the remains of, of Bloodaxe and the, the Diamond King. And the implication is from there that there's, I suppose, a cessation of hostilities between dwarves and trolls and the, uh, the possibility of them, um, you know, understanding one another and not being uh, perennial enemies anymore. Hmm. And uh, that's about it. I think we close with, with Sam reading us on a book again, but, uh, plot wise that does oh yeah it also transpires that Sally, the vampire recruit was a spy for the Low King, uh, but that she does like it in the watching and wants to stay anyway and uh, Vimes allows her to Greg Bashwelson does
0: confide in Vimes saying that he believes that he was possessed by the is it the coming dark the sorry dark. I forget the summoning dark. Uh, but this kind of quasi-demonic entity which, like, takes revenge on dwarves who have done wrong in the eyes of other dwarves. And uh, he's convinced of this, and Vimes, even though the evidence certainly suggests that in many, many ways, he refuses to believe it. Um, there's a brief section within the book that basically says that his internal watchman, which is someone that Vimes has basically created for himself, which is, we definitely see evidence of this kind of internal um Entity, so to speak, in like Nightwatch and in previous books. He doesn't really take physical form or any kind of other kind of form, but there's definitely a suggestion that there is someone within Vines that's holding him back from basically being a bad person. Like he is the watchman who watches the watchman, essentially. And that pretty much wraps it up. That's kind of the entire plot. So, yeah, I guess first question that I always go for what did you think of a colin
1: this, this is a strange one for me to assess because I, I remember reading this shortly after it, it came out and I, I don't think I certainly hadn't read nearly as much as I had now, but I remember loving it at the time. Really, I think it was excellent, so atmospheric and so on. And then sort of becoming aware, the more I, I got into, you know, certain podcasts and reading more about other people's opinions of, of the books, that... It, you know, wasn't held in contempt by any means, but it wasn't held in particularly high regard by a lot of the Discworld fandom. And as we progressed through this, and um, um, we got to Nightwatch, and it seemed just such a perfect coda for the whole Vimes saga, I was quite trepidatious about coming back to another book about on on, on the Watch, but on Vimes in particular, and thinking kind of where can you go after Nightwatch that is narratively satisfying. And mm. I think this book is quite enjoyable in a lot of ways as a as a mystery it's got some wonderful atmosphere to it but there is sort of a sense of it it kind of reminds me of jingo in a way where remember when we done jingo we said you could take it out of the the run of watch books like if you had it you know going guards guards men at arms feet of clay fifth elephant with no jingo you wouldn't really miss a whole lot in terms of like character progression or a sense of the stakes being raised, a sense of the watch being confronted with, you know, things we had not really seen before, being tested in new ways. And there's sort of a sense of that with this this book as well. You know, it, it sort of feels like a kind of I suppose a, a run of the mill watch watch adventure in a lot of ways. Which you know, in many ways is no bad thing. Like it it has a lot of strengths, but at the same time it isn't I don't know, it doesn't feel as remarkable as some of the other watch books we've touched on. Uh, for me, at least. What about you?
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. There is this. I feel like it's just very unfortunate, just the where it's placed. It has it has the very unfortunate task of trying to follow up on Nightwatch, which is not an envious ta- enviable task at all. It sort of strikes me a little bit. It's like it's carpe Jugalum to <laughs> maybe uh, Men at Arms slash Fifth Elephants lords and ladies if you know what i mean so like it's uh it sort of feels like it's treading over old ground again like in terms of we did like what go over racism in both men at arms and feet of clay if i remember rightly um a little bit and even actually because in nearly all the watch books deal with racism in a certain extent now this does do something a little bit interesting in that all the previous books they were talking about racism from the perspective of humans and that they saw like you know the likes of dwarves and trolls as almost like second-class citizens what's interesting in this one is that we're kind of seeing racism between the species as where the humans themselves aren't really like major players whatsoever just like inter interspecies racism which is interesting enough but as you said it is a little bit by the numbers still very good like it's a watchbook that does very well there's some great atmosphere it's a really nice mystery i do think the bits with vimes reading to his son are great for his character development some of the strongest bits that he's had but it just it doesn't have any of the really great highs that the previous watchbooks had that really make it stand out, which is a bit unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I think there's a bit of a, I don't know, a slight sloppiness, uh, which feels very harsh word to use, but but I I can't reach for a better one at the moment. About the way this is plotted and structured, that that lets it down a bit compared to the others. Like uh, I I like the mis the mystery of the painting with, with Colin and Nobby. Like those Colin and Nobby are always really funny. Those scenes are funny. Mm-hmm. I think it, it like it's essentially taking the piss out of the da vinci code which uh, is a book that, and a kind of phenomenon that's eminently worthy of piss takery but something that <laughs> could date very easily you know because it, it's uh, like uh, dan brown probably still makes reams of money, but he's not really a cultural phenomenon anymore yeah. Um so i like that that isn't leaned on too heavily but at the same time like that mystery begins with the painting quite intriguing uh intriguingly and we have this moment where like colin tries to tell Vimes and Vimes doesn't listen and i remember i think at that point i i was like i don't know whatever it was 50 80 pages into it and i just put up on her twitter saying oh like i'm reading Todd and i'm enjoying it and i remember really enjoying it but i get the feeling that a lot of people don't think a lot of it and um Someone, uh, we'll, we'll cover this later when we just covered the Twitter stuff, but someone made the point about like the mi- like miscommunication seeming annoying. And at the time I was like, well, it doesn't so far, but I see what you mean. If 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 I, I'm going to be getting a lot of these scenes where Colon's just on the cusp of telling Vimes this vital piece of information and something keeps interrupting, it will begin to seem contrived. But we don't actually get a lot of that but what we do get later is that like by the time murder of the dwarves in the mine has but found out and the centrality of the coombe valley mythos and mystery to the whole crime i suppose has been foregrounded vimes just, like seems to arrive fully formed be completely up to speed with the what happened with the painting without any scene where colin and nobby fill him in about it you know now Obviously, there's kind of funny bits in this about like Vimes using his little organizer thing. What is it? The uh, the gooseberry. Oh, the gooseberry. Yeah. Yeah. That that he doesn't really like to kind of catch up on his paperwork. And there's you know like quite feasibly he just amid all the other reports he sees, oh yeah, painting stolen. Like it, it doesn't beggar belief that he uh, that he knows about it at all. But given that then that becomes quite a central part. It's weird that we don't have any connective tissue between those two. You know, I suppose those two plot points of colin and nobby initially finding out about this mystery of the painting going missing and kind of you know poking around and then vimes just like being brought up to speed with it completely you know and then the the part at the end with the when he's like reading the he's gone demented reading out the story when he sort of encounters and and cows the um grags the deep downers who are scared of this like you know demented berserker reading children's stories we sort of encounter reach a lot of that second hand you know and it's just we just find out about afterwards and it sort of felt as not know kind of sort of anticlimactic to me now admittedly i think it's deliberate in this book that the climax isn't really defeating the villain it's the political stuff of like revealing what really happened at coon valley and then deciding how that is going to be communicated through the wider dwarf and troll communities and what ramifications it's going to have and so on but i don't know it just felt it felt kind of like hastily put together like there's just yeah there's just some bits where the connective tissue doesn't fully mesh up another one is the, like the plot point of sally being a, a spy for the low king which you know mm. again is like isn't something that doesn't make sense and it is does sort of touch on some of teams, like I suppose like, like Vimes becoming a bit more politically savvy, like when Vetinari says about, like, oh, our friend's spying us, there's no point in spying on our enemies. And at the end, when he finally says Sally's a spy, he's sort of internalized this message and says, I suppose better, essentially better inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Let's keep her. I, admittedly, actually, maybe we'll get to this later, but uh, I, I had always heard about Vetinari that, Throughout the books, you get the feeling that he's grooming either Vimes or Moist to take over from him at some stage, and that had never rang true to me about Vimes. I thought, like, yeah, I can see it with Moist because he's getting him to run these different institutions. Vimes is perfectly suited for this role, and perhaps veterinaries kind of has an eye on him and like, well, whoever's going to replace me, Vimes will be there to keep them in check. Uh, but this, this was the one of the few instances where I sort of felt like, ah. Oh, I can kind of see how people would get that because he, veterinary does seem here about like I suppose like quite intent on instructing Vimes on more like heavy duty politics, and Vimes here does seem a bit more uh, savvy about navigating his way through all that than he does like he's still impatient and bad-tempered about it but he's you know savvier than he was but in any case that yeah that plot point with, with Sally doesn't nothing really comes of it either way you know I mean horror in general as a character she's got some quite intriguing elements but she seems quite underserved it's like Pratchett almost feels like Vimes, where like it's like I oh, got to get a a vampire into watch sooner or later, <laughs> He's yeah. almost forced against his will and just doesn't know what to do do her when he when he gets there. I found um, when
0: I was reading this, like the, the, it's a strange one in that like it's still a good book. That's the thing. Like I mean, I mean, I know we can say this of quite a lot of yeah, like reasons. we're always grading um, on a curve, you know.
1: Yeah. The uh, the the worst of them are good ones.
0: Mm, this one doesn't even like I wouldn't even grade this as like you know particularly bad it's just that like we've gotten to the point now where there's so much good that like if you get anything that's just pretty good it's going to feel worse than it is and like this is like you know still pretty good book there are like some some shortcut. It's it's never a case of in my opinion like there's very few cases here where like you can say the writing is particularly bad like there's one or two bits like eh, it's not okay, not that great but i really like you know this particular mystery or the way the atmosphere is set up here or like this piece of character development is really good there's plenty of moments of that it's just that like they all fall a little bit shorter of like previous books and i guess it's because it feels so similar to previous books you know so like like with the witches i was was because i was bringing it back with the comparison between Carpage Galum and Lords and Ladies. I think the reason that stood out to us so much is because they're the only ones where the plots are so very similar. Because, you know, like, Witches Abroad, they have, like, this entire, like, you know uh glow well disc trekking thing going on uh like witches is a uh, fish out of water kind of thing with masquerade it's kind of like you know small country witches in the big city and like it's a smaller very different kind of story a bit of a murder mystery which is nice then carpeg gala comes along and it's like this is kind of just lords and ladies again and there's a lot of that kind of repetition in the watch books i know we've said that we really really like them But I think this is something that we might have overlooked in the fact, like, we do like it so much, but is there an argument to be said that the plots are quite similar? With the likes of, like, The Fifth Elephant and Nightwatch, they're different enough that they're like, no, of course not. They're, like, you know, completely different and, like, just, I think we've just talked about how amazing they were. But, but for example, Men at Arms and Feet of Clay, both very good books. We enjoy of them a lot, but are they very, very similar?
1: yeah i mean i i think in in the uh the blurb for feed of clay episode i have a, a reference in it where i say someone is trying to kill and replace the patrician again like you know <laughs> it, it's going back to the well a good thing and you know i mean in feed clay i think that's a terrific book and it it, it doesn't have, I, I think what what hurts this one too is coming after going postal which admittedly you weren't quite as high on as myself and rose but it's regardless it always wins points for like it's a new character it's a new sort of you know type of thing he's trying to do like we've only really seen something like it with the truth where it's kind of oh this new um or in this case revived institution takes hank more for quite by storm but unlike the earlier ones it's not going to be supernatural and re- uh, rest- restoration of the status quo so going back to a, a run of the mill watch one afterwards feels even less I suppose innovative than than it would have uh, elsewhere in the the chronology of the series. There's also a, I I was reading over. we'll get to this later, but um I I was reading o- over some information on Pratchett about how like around the same time in the series you kind of see him bringing to a close a lot of the early protagonists. So like Rincewind finishes up in Last Continent, you know gets a bit of a coda in uh in last or yeah, the last hero. The witches in Carpe Jugulum, and around the same time, you have the fifth elephant. And then afterwards, we have Nightwatch, which is kind of like this, like, you know, epilogue that, in in the way it's set up, really, I, I suppose, like, brings violence back to his roots. It's like, he's just having a son. It really seems to finish everything off. And, and the watch is the the one well Pratchett keeps returning to, uh, having seemingly had the chance to, I suppose, move on from it like he did with the other sub-series earlier. I can't complain too much about that because I suppose had he been ending, uh, moving away from the watcher, and he was moving away from the others, we wouldn't have got Night Watch, which we absolutely adored. Uh, and then we only get two books after that. But there is, this, uh, I suppose, a sense of like they don't feel as I suppose like am- uh, ambitious as as the uh, as the earlier ones.
0: Yeah, I mean, like Night Watch in particular, because it was so like explosively original like i mean now I, I know some people will say that like you know time travel isn't that original but in this particular context and just the way the character was explored and the differences in tone and so on and so on, everything we explored in the podcast which you can check out on this website um <laughs> like because they do so much with it it just feels like such a high point and then just to bring it back to something that feels so normative it it, it suffers for it it, it does Maybe we should talk about, like, some of the things that it does well, like, some of the innovative parts. Like, one thing that I did enjoy, even though that it is a bit of a repeat, is when we're talking about the racism between the trolls and the dwarves. That's something that has been touched upon before, but actually, like, examining, like, the origins of that and, like, how how it affects them, how it came about, and how it affects other people. That's something that was... um, we saw bits of it. We saw we, I think we probably saw the most blatant example of it in Men at Arms when that was the the basic theme of that book was racism there, so we kinda of saw it, but that was it was kind of examined in such a broad sense, in such broad strokes, that it was um, it's like, Oh, it's interesting that, you know, a fantasy book is examining such a relevant theme. Here it goes into a bit more depth and I do like the idea that there's like levels of racism within these uh other species like you know it's not just a case of like lumping them all in together i think that's good and also like this is contrasted nicely with actually this is something i wanted to ask you about the whole um so we had the contrast between the the trolls and dwarves and also werewolves and vampires which is <sighs> i feel like it was a little clumsily handled what i mean i i kind of think it was nice that it was there but it kind of feels so clean-cut and basic in a way, the way it's handled. Like I, I don't feel like we get much out of the whole relationship between Angua and Sally. I don't know. What do you think on on that topic? Yeah,
1: I, I would agree. I think it's really ill-served. I mean, it becomes a very cliched. Oh, hot woman doesn't like other hot woman because she thinks she's mm. gonna steal her man. She's so insecure. Yeah. Like, there's nothing in the in Angua's insecurity and her kind of, I suppose, like, weird feelings of possessiveness but inferiority around uh her kind of innate scepticism that leads to her distrust of Sally. None of it is uncharacteristic of the angle we've come to know over the past few books, but it does show her at her worst, like, at her most insecure, her most paranoid... In the last episode, uh, my, myself, yourself and Rose were talking about Pratchett's depiction of women in early books. And, and I said he kind of has a tendency to sort of have his cake and eat it, too, when he's sending up these like sort of sexist, you know, titillating conventions of traditional fantasy where he's drawing attention to them and kind of mocking them, but also using them, you know, with people like Conina and um, Tracy. And, and, and so on. And there's sort of a sense of that here. Like you have that scene when when they're in the mine and, and Sally makes the joke about like oh we're naked and we're covered in mud, all we need is a paying audience. So she's kind of drawing attention to the fact that like yeah, you know, we hate each other but it would actually be really sexy for anyone who's watching. But it's like, but you're still doing it, you know
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it
1: throughout all that there are funny bits. Like I do like when they're um they tunnel beneath the strip club called and Obi are in and angular like breathing out all the instructions to Colin and nobby about what they're going to need, like it's like we're going to need some towels and some water and you know, and she's get, getting your kind of getting this one sided conversation, like and shoes, what size, you know. I I just thought like that's quite well done, but <laughs> again, it it annoys me too because it seems so contrived within the the world of the book. Like the the tricky part would with, with, uh, reading about uh, Pratchett's depiction of these different fancy species and. Uh, relating them through the lens of real life, real world, cultural, ethnic, religious tensions is like, you know, there's only so far you can go, and it's something he's aware of too. Like in in moving pictures, when he kind of mocks the idea of like, oh, Ginger is gonna one of her love interests is a troll, and she's protesting, saying like, I'm human, one why'd I go with a troll, but the troll is acting like it's like a racist thing, and I, yeah. I, like I, I also enjoyed that joke because I feel like it's him showing like yeah there's there's only so far you can go when you're using actual different species as a proxy for real life human uh relations and it's like that with the vampire stuff like vimes distrust of of letting vampires in the watch is on the one hand as you were saying kind of to i suppose show the limitations of his character and that he is kind of like can be quite small-minded and stubborn and prejudiced about certain things but on the other hand like yeah, Vimes not wanting a vampire to watch, like he has much more concrete reasons to go on than someone like say in real life who wouldn't want I don't know like like a Muslim or a Hindu joining a police force, you know? It's it's like there's mm. like one of them is just a different kind of religious faith. One of them is a creature that like literally feeds on human blood. That is, yeah. <laughs> you know. And again, there's there's fun had with that, but but it does cause some awkwardness when you try and deal with these things. And what annoys me about the Angu and Sally thing too is that like the business where like the fact that Angua distrusts Sally because she's a vampire but is played out again in this very cliched oh I'm insecure because she's so hot sort of way when it could be played out in a much more interesting way where of course like angua comes from a country where vampires and werewolves are two of the power bases and they've distrusted one another you know historically and she just have her own kind of prejudices there of like i know vampires i grew up with vampires they're really sneaky whatever in the same way if you had like uh, again like like two people from kind of like uh you know warring uh, factions or, or rival groups in in real life in the in the same organization that's the kind of things they'd be drawing from rather than some a gut feelings of inferiority or or suspicion
0: yeah i think this is a particularly bad missed opportunity here now in in the overall arching thing because like i remember thinking to myself like oh but is it worth it because like we do get some really interesting scenes like and well sorry i say interesting some really entertaining and funny scenes like particularly when they go out for drinks with cheery and tawny but there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't have those regardless and still had those interesting racial tensions or cultural tensions like or specious uh, tensions, whatever you want to call it, like uh, come out to play anyway. Um, I think it's the fact that it comes back down to carrot like so often. it's It feels quite regressive. Um, and like to be fair, I guess at the end of the novel... Um, well, actually, no, I was going to say, to be fair, it kind of resolves itself. But as far as I remember, the last we really see of that is when uh, Sally sneaks out the window and Angua is aware that she snuck out the window and she's thinking, OK, well, I could just like cl- wake up and close the window. But then I have to explain like uh, to Vimes, oh, well, I didn't know it was her going out when he knew it would be her. Of course, it's just not really giving, given satis- uh, a satisfying level of observation and investigation, which is a real shame, considering that we do have some relatively rich subject matter in terms of the tensions between the dwarves and the trolls, in terms of, like, you know, uh, false histories and, well, yeah, false histories and, you know, uh, propaganda and all that sort of thing. and It just seems so clean-cut, basic, and dumb, basically, uh, between Angua and, and... And they're the only... That's the only werewolf and... Well, we do see the vampires, the black ribboners, who are trying to push a Sally into the watch, but nothing really comes of them at all. They're really just a tool to get Sally into the plot more than anything else. So, yeah, that that is quite unfortunate.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, and given that, like, so much of the book is about sort of the uh, political ramifications of these tensions, the fact that there is political history and depth to be mined there in Angua and Sally's background Nuverball and it said they just go to this cliched fighting over the same fella thing is a pity. And stuff like um like Angua talks to Carrot about how she just feels innately uncomfortable around vampires and then a moment later they meet Otto Shriek and there's no mention of that at all. You know, uh, which, again, gives you this feeling of, like, it's it's just this thing that's been played out for playing up to old kind of gender uh, cliches.
0: Yeah, I will say, um, so I'm going to go on two divergent paths here. So let's cover one quickly and go on to the more interesting one second. First, I was particularly annoyed with, uh, there's a point where Angua draws attention to the fact that when Carrot says, nice job. She draws the comparison between how a master says to his dogs, like, who's a good boy then? Or who's a good girl then? And it's a very uncomfortable, you know, just thing to have there. Like, I mean, like, she she does draw attention to it saying, like, I shouldn't feel this way. um, But this is just, like, part of who I am is the canine thing. And I just, I really don't like that comparison. I don't like, I think that's a really ugly way to go an ugly way to represent like, you know, anyone, regardless of like the character development that we've had up until this point, and I feel like it just could have been ignored. I was I just plainly was not comfortable with that part in, in the book. But coming back to the interesting topic of Otto Shriek, uh, sorry, did you have something so, to say? Well
1: to f- one thing on Sir Yeah, yeah, just one thing on that is that they they do reference that kind of Dom sub relationship when I think Hor and Sally have some exchange where um I think Angus says something like, he's mine, and Sonny goes, no, you're his, and talks about like, uh, she kind of even says, she says, uh, what is it, like your heart beats faster when you're around him, and his skips a beat, so you know, it's, it's evident they do care for one another not mm. that, that uh, respect, but there, yeah, it is very, it's very much emphasized this like, um, Actually, again, I don't know. On the one hand, I think it's this really daring depiction of a uh, sexual kink that is rarely depicted in any way outside of just being purely there for titillating purposes. On the other hand, it's that element of like. When you're dealing in these fantasy species, there's only so far you can go and compare it to real life. Like, Angua being literally part dog, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, means that her relationship with Carrot in that way is going to be inherently very different than any humans, you know, like, who don't have that same kind of uh, innate relationship with, with, with one another based on... Uh, yeah, we're kind of animal genetics. But anyway, go on. Um,
0: Actually, just you reminded me of another point there. But, like, another thing I was uncomfortable with as, as well was I really liked part of Sally's character in that, like, she seemed very. It's it's implied, it's not really made explicit, but it is implied that she's very, like, sexually liberated and also potentially bisexual because I think there's definitely a sense of, like, some kind of chemistry between her and Angua. Like, the point where she's saying, you know, we're in the mud, like, all it takes would be, you know, a paying audience, we could make a fortune at this. Like, you know, there's a sense of fun about her, which I would like, except before this we have the, her internal monologue when she's talking to carrot and she has that bit where she says god this one is really handsome all right and i'm like oh you're like all the signs point to it just being you know two hot girls fighting over a guy and i just all the good that is done in the book just seems to be undercut by that central fact so it's like that's quite unfortunate before i move on to my next point on to auto is there anything else you want to add to that
1: no, not really, I said, it's just, it, it's a kind of relationship between the two of them that has a lot of potential to play out in interesting ways, and unfortunately goes down quite a cliched route, and as I said, in the end, leaves Sally's role feeling quite underwritten, like, you do get some good scenes with her, like, the, the girls' night out, as you said, which is a nice kind of parallel with the the lads' pub crawl we got in Guards Guards between the, the, the four um, yeah, watchmen who were around then, but we don't, you know, just overall, you're kind of left wondering, oh you know you could have taken her out of the book and it almost would have been exactly the same that's that's a, a pity that definitely makes you feel underused yeah. so um on the
0: topic of otto shriek so i know you were saying that like we don't really see anything in terms of Angua's like discomfort around him but there's an interesting moment where vimes is talking about how he himself also doesn't feel that uncomfortable around otto because he has a tendency to forget that he is a vampire and the reason being that, like, Otto kind of makes himself very obvious. Like, he does the whole cape. He's got the widow's peak. He's basically describing Bella Lugosi when he's, you know, talking about uh, the way Otto looks and acts. And he says, but, of course, that makes sense. You know, if you make yourself, like, look this kind of, look the part, you're almost invisible in a sense. And I find myself thinking of the stage Irishman, like, back in, you know, older Irish plays. Like, you know, this character who is, like, put forward and is like you know really emphasizing all the like the traits of like this particular stereotype and like overemphasizing them in such a way that like people kind of consider it just almost like a joke character so they don't really consider the things like him as a threat or like anything to really worry about just how he segues through life and I thought like, that's that's pretty interesting like the way they go through that like and because like otto is In some ways, quite instrumental in this, because a lot of the things that happen throughout this book before they go to Coombe Valley is very much dependent on how Vimes is handling this case, and it has to be—he has to make sure that you know he's being a straight arrow. He's being sensitive to both sides of the conflict. He isn't favor either favoring either species species uh, because if he does that then the other one will immediately rise up and there'll be chaos so it's very very political and the way he handles this is very very like at the beh- very much at the behest of Otto and his camera because in particular when Carrot and the other dwarves are arresting, I've forgotten his name it's not Bashful Son, it's um, what was his name uh, Helm Cleaver yes when he was arresting him like he ensures that the it's all dwarves doing it. On the one hand, they're like, okay, the crowd who are around there watching, they all see that it's dwarves. But it's Otto taking the picture and seeing it in the newspaper. This is you know, this is where it's really, really important. And yeah, so Otto, I think he plays up like that level of, like this. It's funny that like it's He he does have that like very much overemphasized like nature about him in the truth when we first meet him, but we're not really getting given, like, reasoning behind it, really. So it's interesting that it's brought up here. I th- I thought it felt fairly organic, and, like, it was just an interesting take on the character.
1: Yeah, it's one of the parts I, I really like. I mean, that Vimes' is sort of awareness of Otto knowingly playing up to these stereotypes, put people at ease, and, you know, he wonders who's laughing re- really when they're laughing at you. Again, shows Vimes being more politically savvy, and, and you're right, it does have echoes of stuff like stage Irishmen and, like, other, uh, you know, historically and currently oppressed groups can you know there are examples of across cultures of them kind of playing into these stereotypes to put people at ease and to maybe like avoid some of the more negative uh, connotations but doing it in a sort of knowing uh, mocking way and vimes having to deal with the press is one of the original elements of this book i suppose compared to the other ones like we saw vimes in the truth but that was from the other side of you know it's it's uh, william deward having to deal with him here this is the first watch book we've got because obviously the night watch goes goes back in time before the more part times had been established so this is the first watch book we got where that is a going concern you know of being aware of the press and how things will look to other people so yeah i, I really enjoyed that that element of it and again, it, it plays into this idea of it being more than just a mystery. Like, it isn't enough for Vimes just to go up and arrest whoever it is committed the murder. This is played out on this much wider level of cultural tensions and international politics. So he has to be aware of it. And, it, I mean, that's good because, again, it shows him growing as a character as he grows more savvy. But it's a sense of, I suppose, like heightened stakes. Like, he didn't have to be as conscious or mindful of these things maybe in, in earlier books and now he's in an elevated position to watch her in an elevated position so with greater power comes greater responsibility essentially to paraphrase uncle ben i i think there's an interesting part with, with vimes where obviously you've had almost like it becoming almost a running joke that in each book he's you know promoted or gained something new almost against his will and his uh, ascent I, I think pratchett often singled out detritus as the most upwardly mobile character in this world who begins as like a bouncer essentially, and ends up as um you know like a respected figure in the watch with, and, and a happy marriage, and by the end of this book, a happy essentially adopted uh, yeah. son as well. But vibes of these hugely upwardly mobile too. And he keeps having these worries in this book about like that they, the but the universe for addressing the balance you know it's almost too good to be true and somebody's going to take something away from him. You know I, I like that because I, I think that's relatable. I doubt many of us listening to this have had the luck to, look to uh, ascend quite as much as uh, as Vimes has from the depths of kind of you know being an alcohol soaked joke to being an <laughs> <a, laughs> uh, aristocrat and highly paid uh, figure in your your government. But I think in general you can relate to that kind of feeling of almost having like the bends in your life where you feel like oh all this has happened so fast and it, it's going to be taken away you know quite as fast so i like i like that but it almost had me wondering i'm like is it possible to do the character of does Vimes work as a character when he is in such comfortable and fulfilling circumstances? You know, he's always being defined by being kind of like an underdog and an outsider to power. And, you know, having this sort of, I suppose, like idealism that's wrapped up with a lot of skepticism and bitterness. And can you still do that when he not only is wealthy and powerful, but also has a loving family? Like I think it's summed up in the moment where he carrot, stops all of the traffic so he can get home yeah and i'm not the first one to point this out but i'm thinking got the Vimes of earlier books wouldn't have looked very kindly on an aristocrat using his power to bring the traffic to the in the city to a standstill so he could just get home to read a book to his child that he has any amount of servants to do for him you know and i mean there's something admirable uh, i think as you mentioned in vibes general commitment to this of like i've got to read to him and a good excuse will lead to bad excuses and so on but you're still like yeah uh, Everyone has families, rich people and poor people, and poor people can often afford to bring a city to a standstill to meet their self-imposed duties as as parents.
0: Yeah, that's. Um, I don't think there's really a way out of that argument. There now, you're right. The pre like older Sam Vimes would not have looked kindly on that whatsoever. But I guess the only really argument that we can say there is that he's just evolved as a character, and it is you could say that there is an element of the old Sam Vimes that has just been lost in like this new Sam Vimes. I mean, it's always really nice coming back to Sam Vimes as a character because you can see that like original sliver that we enjoyed in Guards, Guards has maintained like throughout pretty much his entire character arc in all eight stories. He's still, he's not the same person from the start. Like he has changed, like he's gotten more cynical in some ways. And, like, I feel that he becomes, he has to exercise more and more restraint. Yeah, the bit with the carts is an odd one. I feel like it's just a comedic moment. Like, I don't think there's, you can't really excuse it per se. Like, I just think it's that moment where he just, it's not that important for him. For him, the most important thing is his son, and his family. And that's something that I feel... I I'll be interested to go back to Snuff because I want to look that look at that through different eyes now because I remember at the time I read it and I didn't enjoy it because it was such a different book. But now having considering having considered Vimes' entire arc, if I look at Snuff as more like here's a guy who has like reached his peak and now he's kind of settling basically into retirement, but like sort of against his will, and like how he deals with retirement as a whole and I feel like this is almost like a transition towards that you know so like whereas one point like his commitment would have been to the job and to his city he's kind of forced to admit that he's in a place now where he's happy and that he actually has a family that he cares about and they might sometimes actually and that's the kind of thing the interesting question that comes up a lot like which takes uh, precedence for him is it the job or his family and I think he's constantly balancing the two like really really closely so that it never really feels like one is particularly more important than the other. This is one of those cases where like the scales definitely tip in favor of the family as
1: opposed to the city. What's interesting about that of course though is that we see this uh, tension being played out with the sort of the um, other people in the watch like the trolls and dwarves who are resigning their commission presumably because you know their families have said like you're in that watch and you're arresting fellow dwarves or fellow trolls rather mm-hmm. you know whose side are you on and they, like they have to make that choice they choose uh there's Vimes here is wrestling with the same choice and i, I don't know I, I wish more was made of it i suppose like you know if even he or someone else was aware of, of of this playing out it's funny we're we're recording this obviously as you know everyone knows in the midst of a global pandemic and Ireland where I am as a lot of countries were in you know a state of lockdown a bit relaxed from where we were a few weeks ago but there's still a lot of restrictions in your ability to you know see your family or, or your loved ones I, I assume it's uh, it's similar in Japan you were saying it's it's getting uh, where, where you are isn't as badly affected yeah
0: here it's not quite as bad we don't have as many cases and we don't have a strict lockdown per se but a lot of businesses have remained shut and we are it's not like you know we're not restricted in traveling but it has been implored upon us not to travel in between prefectures
1: mm-hmm. and, and in the uk it's quite similar and you're having the scandal now of dominic cummings the uh advisor to the prime minister boris johnson being caught of having broken the the lockdown rules perhaps more than more than once and his defenders in, in in like johnson's uh i suppose like aides and other Tory party grandees are saying you know he wasn't just he was this man cared about his family he was you know going down and I suppose the counter argument is, well, we all care about our families, but we're all also trying to abide by these uh, rules to ensure this disease is spread. And I suppose there's a certain parallel there with, with Vimes and how he's juggling his family with his job. You know, it's kind of like presumably all those other troll and dwarf officers who are having to resign, at, you know, are juggling something similar. and But we're not getting as much of an insight into there their circumstances i think too the idea of the threat to vimes's home like I, I i like the moment where the, the trolls the kind of cry so heavies almost say it accidentally like Vimes says yeah well he knows where i live and they say yeah he does and he looks at them and then it's a fly so yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's yep but, <laughs> but uh, so like i think that that plays out in some nice moments but I don't know for me it is a little overused and this might be purely personal thing that I I sort of feel like it's kind of a bit, a bit of a like a crutch, like an action film sequel cliche. This time it's personal. You know, how do you raise the stakes? Oh, well, we'll have the villain go after their family this time. You know, we'll give them this vulnerability that exists independent of them. They don't have to do your main character. Your action hero does not be more vulnerable. Their family are vulnerable. And then this allows them to be, you know, threatened and raising up the stakes. Uh, Like, I've occasionally brought pro wrestling tropes and cliches into this. And it's kind of a, a running joke amid, like, wrestling fans that, like, the, the people who write WWE seem to have this idea that like even mentioning someone's family is like the worst possible sin in the world like you can like you know beat a guy near to death with a chair and almost cripple him but like if he says you know oh uh, yeah your son's gonna be watching this then it's like whoa yeah. whoa now it's yeah. personal <laughs> you know like it's in a, in a way that, like, doesn't always come across as, as the kind of legitimate stake-raising statement that they want it to be. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And here, I, I, I think, like, as I said, it is pulled off quite nicely in places, but I just feel it's leaned on a little too heavily. Like, there is a sense of, like, Vimes is back and this time it's personal <laughs> because they're going after his family. Um. Yeah, I few
0: things on that. Just one thing I want to say about the um, the whole stopping traffic thing. I do think it is significant to note that it is Carrot who stops the traffic and not Vimes himself. So, like, he's just running, like, to get, like, to uh, his get home, like, on foot. Then Carrot comes by in the cart and, like, he tells Vimes that, like, he stopped the traffic himself. And Vimes is kind of like, you well, you've already done it now, so I might as well keep going. So, like, I mean... It's still, like, he is still somewhat complicit in it, but he isn't the one who causes it, so I think that is worthy of note.
1: It is, but I, I, I think, like, ultimately, the, the case that, like, if you think of how Vimes would have been critical of, of aristocrats throwing their weight round for, they probably would have been doing that through their subordinates, mm. Um, you know, like, maybe they don't explicitly ask for X, Y, or Z, but the, the subordinate makes it happen, like... Vimes is a stop carrot, and he never questions it later. Like he never even maybe rushes home with a panic, reads Young Sanisori, and then thinks, "Oh gosh, you know, this is getting a bit too drastic." I I just let carrot, you know, close down half a city to let me get home. Like there's no moment of awareness over it, really. Like no moment of of interrogation. But sorry. Um. John.
0: Yeah, but uh, as well as that, I I do think it's it's funny. Like it leans a bit too heavily on it, and in some cases. I partially wish that they didn't and part, part of me wishes that they leaned more heavily into it because, but then I'm looking for a different kind of story if that's the case I guess what I want here more than anything is less of a focus on like the politics, that the racial politics that are going on here and more on Vimes' tra, transi, tra, eh, transition into just like a delegating officer and just being more comfortable with himself like in that position as opposed to like you know a police officer i think like this task that he sets himself to make sure that he is home on time to read to his son could have been more interesting than it was because it's kind of him saying to himself like i can't be in charge anymore i've got other obligations here and i have to be able to balance those too." and i think that could have been really interesting and it's it's still pretty good i don't think like it's a complete failure by any means But I would have liked it a little bit more. I do get where you're coming from with the um, this time it's personal thing. I do think the attack on his family is done particularly well. I love the absolute fury and rage that Vimes goes into. Because I think it's very well handled. Very emblematic of Vimes himself. And we do see how he manages to still come back from that. And like put himself under like the watchful eye of the watch. His internal watchman. Like kind of you know making sure that he doesn't sink to a certain level my problem with it is whereas i like the way it's handled we already saw the perfect example of this at the end of Nightwatch when he manages to stop himself from killing carcer like that was the pinnacle of that moment because carcer goes after his son tries to kill him and then we have this incredible moment where vimes is faced with the opportunity to just kill him there and then but he still manages to come back from that and like it was never going to be better than that that was like the peak moment and that's when we saw him like at this his most vulnerable and he just manages to overcome it now it's good to see he's still struggling with this because that's just part of his character he's in a constant state of like trying to balance like or trying to control the darkness inside him which is just something that's constantly referenced good that it's still going but you can't you can't shake the fact that it is somewhat anticlimactic because this is a struggle we've seen before
1: yeah yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean we'll get to it in a bit but it feels like the summoning derek is sort of similar in that like that struggle within him to uh police himself it's like there's nowhere left to go but up to stakes to supernatural <laughs> levels because it's already been done so mm-hmm. well in in night like you know there's there's strong points to like i, I like the fact that the fact that Vimes' is home gets more threatened means we see more of his home life. We get more of Sybil, which is always good. Like, she's, she's very good in, in his book. Like, I I do think the kind of, the way he describes being in the nursery with yeah. young Sam is really lovely. And this kind of feeling of, like, the world went pink and soft. That's, yeah, that's a great line. Like, <laughs> it, it's like coming down or something. Like, he, he just seems, can hardly deal with it. And yet treasures it but can't process what he's feeling i love the scene where he's kind of deducting what's going on between reading the story to sam so you're getting like a line of where is my cow while he's thinking maybe they wanted me to find that yeah button. yeah we're yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of getting it like again I, I like those scenes where vimes solves a part of the mystery in a very uh sort of like plodding workman like way where it's just like okay i'm getting from point a to point b to point c and we're seeing that thought process rather than a big eureka moment that we get from a you know a traditional kind of super detective but thinking about what you're you're saying i mean we do see him i suppose like learn to delegate a bit and like him kind of seeing there's a use for the gooseberry but what might have been interesting is if he had retired at the end of night watch to take care of his family and then in this book like say carrots in charge of the watch but Vimes can't quite let go so he's Technically retired, but he's like, "Oh, what's this about a dwarf getting killed? I can help out mm. there." And Carrot's in this uncomfortable position of being like, "Oh no, you can't, because you're just a, you know, you're not in the the Watch anymore." Then Vimes, his family gets threatened, and there's that sense of like he's got to protect his family, and the Watch have to protect his family, but he's on the outside of the Watch protecting his family because he's no longer in it. Like that, you know, might have been an interesting way for it to uh play out and that that tension between his commitment to the watch and his commitment to family being more strained in that way when he's maybe out of watch but but wants to be back in
0: Mm. like i mean that would have been nice in a way but then if in doing that we probably wouldn't have had the whole racing home on time to read to his son which i do feel is very nicely handled so but i i totally take your point like i think that would have been like a more organic trajectory for him it's just it's this is such a confusing book in that there's plenty of stuff that we're like oh i wouldn't mind if they did this differently but then that affects another part of the narrative that i liked so i'm like but then we would have lost out on that bit and it's like it's you know i don't mean this like in like a really harsh kind of way but it's kind of a mess kind of it's a hot mess you know like it's that like um there's stuff in there that is re- i really like and it's a bit all over the place and none of it's really that bad but it just could have been like laid out
1: a little better Mm. Well, you know, thinking about it structurally, the messiness, uh, maybe I can could like get get to the heart of it with a question for you here. Does Vimes have more or less agency in this book than he does in Nightwatch? Ooh, um,
0: <sighs> that's a difficult question, actually. Um, It feels like less, but I don't think that's really due to, like, it isn't really a question of agency per se. It's just that he has more responsibilities and he has to like take a lot of things like that into account. Like whereas in, the, in Nightwatch, he's, um, he's almost fighting for his life, you know? And like he's almost in a state of frenzy for the ma- entirety of the book because he isn't really sure what's real, what's not, what needs to happen, what can happen, what can't happen. So like everything is a lot simpler in Nightwatch in a way.
1: Like, I feel like part of the point of Nightwatch is that he does have much agency and he can't really affect the revolutionary events going on around him. You know, like he has that brief moment when they're on the barricades and he thinks, oh, maybe what if we do win and he has to weigh up, you know, that there won't be a, a future for him or a present for him to go home to. But overall, there's this sense of like he's a leaf on the wind in these, you know, uh, in the kind of tornado that is the more of politics at the time and it, it's that bit as to is it knock he says we're already in trouble we just have to decide what kind of trouble we want to be in like that's the change he's making that's the agency's exercising a night watch is like in molding people like his younger self and the other officers and the people around him rather than in affecting the uh the bigger political picture whereas here he's restored to his full powers you know he's Duke he's commander of the watch I mean really if, if you if you imagine he doesn't get involved in any of this stuff at all, does it kind of play out more or less the same way? There's this sense that, like, Mr. Shine and Bashfulson and the Low King all know what's going on. Mm. I mean, he's aware of that. He talks about how they kind of use him. They want him to to find what's going on at Coombe Valley because his reputation for trustworthiness is such that no political interest group will be able to question the objectivity of what he's found because he this apparently objective justice serving uber policeman has found it rather than an interested party like a like a leader of the dwarves or a leader of the trolls and i i kind of like his awareness of that and his sort of how he kind of comes to terms that he says like why do you need to bribe sam vimes when you can just pull the wall over his eyes anyway but how he isn't kind of that he's frustrated but he's not that angry because he's like well you know ultimately like, I've done what I want to do, like, you know, I've, I've cut the criminal and good is going to come of this. Again, that shows a sort of maturation on mm. his part and getting savvier to political events. But there is a sense of, like, that he doesn't really affect him or the watch in general. It, it's kind of a run-round till like they get to a conclusion that all of the players, the main players involved in this, knew anyway. And... I don't know whether that's intentional. Like in 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 Night Watch, uh, de- it definitely seems intentional there. I mean, here you do have this moment of awareness of thinking that it, the wolf been pulled over his eyes, but it just feels a little messier and more unsatisfying than um earlier ones. It doesn't feel like a full subversion of a kind of I suppose like the structure of the Watch books or a mystery novel, like something like um, do you remember, did, did, did you read the New York trilogy by um, what's yeah, name? Philip i was about to say philip glass it's not philip glass Who um yes. paul Oster. um yeah and like it's three novellas and they're all kind of like sending up conventions of of mystery solving probably too much ask for something as as you know bananas as, as that but this doesn't feel like it's kind of committing to i'm doing the watch again but i'm kind of deconstructing yeah you know what you want it more feels like that lack of agency comes from just a general i don't know messiness and fuzziness about the whole yeah, thing
0: yeah i do kind of get the sense that like this didn't necessarily have to be a vimes novel either like i felt this could have very easily yeah, have been yeah. like a sequel to the truth in a way that like this was all taken from the point of view of william the Word because like vimes he like what he actually does for the most part is like have meetings throughout the entire book like he has that one point where the dwarves are um you know like attacking his family and that's a very action-packed very good part and at the very end, he does manage to solve it. Those are the two kind of key moments, I feel, in terms of, like, narrative pacing and, like, development. But overall, like, he meets with uh, Chrysophase, he meets with Mr. Shine, he meets with, like, the deep-down uh, dwarfs. He investigates, like, the, um, the painting. Now, I know we could kind of be describing any uh, watch novel, like, at this point. But there is just this sense of detachment. He's not... It doesn't feel like he's playing to his strengths here. Like he's not do- he's not doing that really assertive vimes thing where he's like putting all the pieces together. Even though there is jigsaw like uh, allegories within the the actual novel itself. I don't get the sense that there is that much of that here like not nearly as much as there was in just for example Feet of Clay where like he's trying to unravel this mystery for pretty much the entirety of the book whereas in this it just feels he's like he's kind it almost feels like he's doing his day to day which his day to day just happens to be on Coombe Valley Day do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Fide of Clay is an interesting parallel actually because um in Fide of Clay we see that like veterinary knew about the plot to poison him the whole time and was letting it play out. So you could argue that, you know, there's a similar sense of Vimes not having agency, but I think Fide of Clay makes a stronger point of Vetinari's doing this for purely political purposes, but kind of Vimes is this arbiter of like human justice. Like the the idea of a you know, and the, the maid and the baby are killed by the poison as ultimately collateral damage. And he is so enraged by this that, you know, he ends up burning down the the hall of heraldry that the Dragon King of Arms runs and kind of ensures that the whole thing's been brought down. So I, I feel like Fida Clay more like knowingly balances this idea of like, yeah, the ultimate political result of this crime he's solving has kind of already the path has already been laid out by more knowing figures behind the scenes in that case veterinary and here uh the, the low king and, and mr shine but he's serving a kind of greater deeper justice of you know um, being the voice of the voiceless in a way that we don't really see as much here one thing too with the political situation in the way it's depicted is that it's sort of hurt, too, by the fact that we get, you know, Ham Crusher and the Grags being these rabble-rousing troublemakers for the dwarves. We don't really get an equivalent with the trolls. Mm. Like, that meeting with Chrysophase is as close to comes. But even Chrysophase, who's, like, obviously a, you know, a gangster, he's still seen as more sort of sensible and wants what's, you know, best for his business, albeit his kind of nefarious business, done, you know, a kind of, uh, I suppose, like a, yeah, like a rabble-rouser troublemaker like Ham Crusher there is a nice scene that reflects that with detritus getting angry if i'm saying how you know you're tiptoeing around the dwarves culture and you're not paying any attention to the trolls and even the they like by doing that you're actually buying into these offensive myths some of the dwarves subscribe to that that denigrate troll kind and, and troll culture and i i like that sort of stuff and i like kind of that quite understandable flaw in vimes spartan and having to reflect on it but it's not quite filled out because we don't get a full picture of troll kind and troll culture like we get Mr. Shine but he's he's deliberately a complete alternative to the mainstream of troll culture in the way that Bashfulson is this you know Greg who's very progressive and very untraditional so he, he's not very representative of what your I suppose what your average troll on the street thinks and feels yeah
0: and it's funny that you should say that because i remember before we came into this i was kind of thinking of uh thud i remember when we went to see oh, when we went to see when we read the last elephant in my head i was like okay this is the one where they go to Uberval and it's kind of like the dwarf book you know because there's so much interaction with dwarves in that point point. and in my head i was thinking oh yeah thud this is the one with the, thro- the trolls this is the troll book and it's funny that there really isn't nearly as much as i thought there was and like you i was waiting for there to be more of a balance between like just general interactions between like humans and trolls versus like humans and dwarves but there's just so much more on dwarves and not nearly enough on trolls for it to me really be worthwhile and well balanced uh another thing i think that this suffers from a little bit although it's it's a little iffy tell me what you think on this so at some points i think that it really benefits on not having a clear cut villain in that, like, the deep downers are kind of almost, like, faceless figures. Like, you know, just kind of, like, general bureaucracy. General, like, uh, faceless figures who represent, like, you know, parties. As opposed to, like, a single clean-cut villain. Like, even, like, in the likes of Going Postal, we had... um Mr. Pirate Face uh, guilt. We'll call him Mr. Mr. Pirate Face guilt, whatever his name is. But like he is like a figure. He's a clean cut villain. And we've always said how Terry Pratchett has a bit of problem. He, he has difficulty making his villains like undergo a believable trajectory from start to finish he always they always seem to be like these undefeatable morally physically and tact tactfully unbeatable characters and then they just come down very very easily and in this case they're all kind of faceless figures and they're just kind of representative of one party and it's all very political and symbolic how uh this issue is resolved and it feels somewhat anticlimactic but by the same token it also feels more believable so i don't know how how did you what what kind of takeaway did you have on that just in terms of like the final scenes and how how the novel ends basically
1: yeah it's tricky because in some ways it feels about the most deliberate choice like we said that that sense of it kind of uh, going against some of the conventions of a of a watch mystery book or feels not deliberate and messy and the choice not to have a a real villain feels as closer to being you know being a deliberate choice and, and trying to to make something narratively satisfying out of this this subversion so in that sense i think it's good but it does mean that that ending scene plays out really weird and rushed to me like him reciting the children's book and them supposedly cowering and again the fact that we hear all about it about second hand it just feels like it's it's being yeah rushed through it comes back to i suppose if if there is a villain perhaps it's the summoning dark mm. and i'm i'm up and down on that because uh i think the way the great strength of this book for me is that the, the atmosphere the way the dwarf minds are depicted there's just a real sense of claustrophobia of darkness of mystery of secrets you know even just that this kind of like dark character in the middle of it that there's murder going on with these religious fundamentalists that they're finding something that this great secret that's going to overturn uh, potentially their whole culture and beliefs um, and it, they're willing to kind of do murder for like i you know I, I really I, I really like all of that. Like, it's all the... Given that he's parodying the Da Vinci Code a bit here, it's all the interesting building blocks of the Da Vinci Code that Dan Brown just throws together in the most lazy fashion. Terry Pratchett kind of uh, uses to much greater effect. And the the stuff with, like, the, the Summoning Dark... Uh, the business of things continually arranging themselves in the shape of the symbol. I like that going through. I think the scene where they interrogate Helm Cleaver, mm. who can hardly speak until it is brilliant. Like, like Vimes getting the toad board is, again, showing his sort of, like, growing aware, awareness of these cultures and using that to his advantage in solving the mystery. And Helm Cleaver just being so distraught and afraid. is It's brilliantly mm. atmospheric. And then when the lights go out and even Vimes is, like, desperately bawling to Nobby to like quick, you know, like get a light going and Helm just dies. It's yeah. chilling. It's it's wonderful. The scenes where after they discovered the dwarfs' bodies, they're imagining them behind that door dying and uh, essentially painting out the um the, the symbol with their blood on the the wall is just is great. Like all of that kind of that atmosphere is just so dark and so on. I think for me, it's a little undercut by that scene where where veterinary talks to Vimes about it and knows about it, and I sort of feel like this is the kind of thing that should be out of veterinary's interests or horizons, you know, magic and the uncertain. I like the fact that it does, it does serve of one purpose that I like is that like Vimes is completely in denial about it and remains in denial about it. And I like that, that. it's kind of like underlying that, you know, however strong Vimes is that he does have his limits that once it gets into this realms of the supernatural, he goes completely into denials. Like, oh, no. yeah, like yeah. Um, yeah. I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that. And I did, the scene with veterinary serves to underline that, but you get bits of that later, so you don't really need to see with veterinary. And the part where he jokes to drum that about like who would you bet on in a battle between Sam Vimes and a infinite spirit of darkness, and you're like completely undercuts the tension. Yeah, like, you know, it, like Vimes at this stage, where whatever six or seven books into the Watch thing, he's been built up enough as a character that to find a foe supernatural or otherwise that we as readers, you know, uh, count as a match for him and, and feel enough dramatic tension is a difficult job without having other characters kind of undercut it by joke about how he's going to defeat it. Uh, yeah, that element of it annoys me. And as we were saying, like the idea of the kind of summoning dark, trying to corrupt Vimes and his inner watchman feels like a, a sort of heightened supernatural retread of what we got in nightwatch, Watch that doesn't so much feels like a raising of the stakes as more of a evidence of the futility of that you can't go any further in in what you've done in in night watching though in those particular teams in vimes's trust in himself and his principles and his battles with his inner demons like you know you can throw in supernatural hoopla and it's still not going to do it any better like i love the atmosphere of it i love that vimes himself is a bit unsettled by the supernaturalness of it but Despite that, I, I don't buy that it's going to, um, you know, I never really buy that it's ever going to defeat him and his kind of overcoming, briefly giving in to the summoning dark by falling down the, the hole when him and cheerie are going caving in Coombe Valley and then his overcoming it by shouting out the where is my cow it doesn't really land for me dramatically because as mysterious as the summoning dark has been built up in the abstract just as a a force of darkness and uh, something that the dwarves and others have invested a lot of belief in you never really get a sense that it's a match for vimes and it doesn't It just feels like a kind of brighter, shinier example of what he had to deal with in Nightwatch rather than being a bigger, badder example.
0: Yeah, I do agree with you completely, Um, especially how that... that point where veterinary just makes the casual throwaway joke of it that kind of brought me back to um when we were reading the we free men and if you remember i had a very big issue with the fact that everybody seems to be talking up tiffany aching before she'd really done anything and that kind of really rang false to me and there's a similar kind of sense here that even though we have evidence in this case it just feels like you're completely stripping it of any kind of excitement or tension whatsoever um, i would have liked a bit more like um build up for the summoning dark like there's a lot of hints towards it and like that scene when uh he's interviewing uh helm Cleaver is amazing i really really enjoyed that and it would have maybe liked a little more of that i think that it would have really benefited a lot more maybe would it would have made the clash between vimes and it a little bit more exciting a little bit more dramatic i i think a lot of it is down to like there's some issues with pacing that um even it's it's funny. It's like it's like when I go back to that bit when they're in the pink pussy uh, cat club, where uh, it's a really enjoyable scene. But what does it actually add to the overall narrative? Like uh, it's similar with um, the bit where Vimes uh, asks uh, Ridicully for help getting to Coom Valley, and that entire section of them like driving the cart at like ludicrous speeds like uh, over the plains. Like it's a very enjoyable scene. But I feel like it's taking away from the overall tension, like especially considering the last book that we had was Nightwatch, and we commented on how well, uh, in terms of like tone and atmosphere, how well balanced that was. He took a risk in that it's not nearly as light as previous books; it's much, much darker. But it serves its purpose so much better as a result of that. In this one, I think there's kind of a regression back to like you know what the more of the funny side. It's very light. But it also has dark moments. And I just feel like the balance has not been struck here whatsoever. I found myself drawing some slight comparisons as well to um, Witches Abroad. In that so much of this like takes place in the city. And in my head I remember like most of it taking place in Coombe Valley. But it's really short. The bit that it's actually takes place in Coombe Valley is like a tiny segment of the book. And not really much happens there except for him finding like that one cavern and that's kind of it like so i felt like so much of it is down to structure and tone it's just uneven and um lo- lots of bits in this book are uneven like the parts are great but the way they're put together is not
1: yeah um i i I've never say no to a bit of rick cully so i like his conversation with vines but i feel like the the journey from ank Park, i think it could serve great Great purpose in you do have this wonderful claustrophobic atmosphere built up in Amorport, but with this sense of rising political tensions between the trolls and the dwarves and the, uh, you know that it's going to spill over and there's nothing they could do. I like the I like the kind of placing of the, of that central riot that isn't a riot happening in the middle of the book after they've been. Talking I do like about that. It, that was know, good. Yeah. About, so it happens. It's kind of like that part in Lords and Ladies where you know danny and granny stopped uh, is it like diamanda from summoning the elves and they think like well you know we've done it and it, it, then you know it ends up playing out in that way I, like so i like that and there's so there's tense not only of rising political tensions but also of like the atmosphere in the mines in the deep and, and dark and stuff with the summoning dark and so on and then getting out into this really pleasant bizarre countryside jaunt i think could serve a purpose as being this bit of relief you get before suddenly they're dropped back down into deep and dark again, going underground in Coombe Valley, you know, but the parts in Coombe Valley, as you mentioned, happen really quickly. And again, Vimes is central kind of lost trek throughout there. We get most of it secondhand. So there isn't that, I suppose, that sense there could be of kind of really powerful narrative whiplash of going from deep, dark, dangerous, tense and more park they're like, ah oh, pleasant John through the countryside. So they're like, oh shit, we're back into you know, we're back in this steep dark realm again. Like instead that sort of set up and just breeze through quite quite quickly. I do love the way Coombe Valley is depicted though. I love um the descriptions of it, you know, all the the water flowing in different places. I like the notion, it kind of echoes the bits in jingo when they're in the desert and there's that recurrence of the phrase, the wind changed, where there's this idea of like the the futility of, I would say man or humanity, but in this case, whatever, all these species politicking and empire building and so on next to just the implacable force of nature. Like in the same way that the desert covered over Tacitus's empire in Jingo, here we get this sense of like... You know the trolls and dwarves can meet up to fight in King Valley, but really most of the death is going to be caused by just nature itself sweeping them away. So like I, I like I like all of that, like and it's just, yeah it's just wonderfully evocatively depicted, but a whole lot more could be done with it. I suppose it, it does feel quite underused. I'm not
0: sure how much I'd agree with you in the way it's depicted. Like I think. The idea behind Coombe Valley is very good. The, the idea that there's so many sinkholes and that kind of thing everywhere that you can go down one hole and end up coming out another one, like, you know, several miles down. The idea behind that is great, but I don't really get the sense that Coombe Valley has much personality at all. I mean, maybe that's the point, like, in that it's, you know, completely isolated. But, you know, he's had other locations that are somewhat similar and that have struck a much stronger chord than, like, Coombe Valley did. Like, I... I remember before I started reading this, I couldn't remember what Coombe Valley was like. I kind of found myself imagining um, the low, low King's Kingdom in Uberwald, but just like with trolls. That is kind of how I was picturing because I just flat out could not remember it. I'm kind of getting the same sense here. Like I think great thought was put into how he depicts it, but I don't get any sense of like, connection to it like you know vimes usually has some kind of connection with the places he goes to and like it, it just feels very powerful in some sense i don't get that so much here and this might be down to how fast that we coast through the whole thing and the fact that his um tirade through uh, the caves and the caverns underneath Coom valley we get secondhand. i'm not sure I, I can't really put my finger on what it is didn't do it for me for Coon Valley. Just something about it just did not resonate and I thought that was unfortunate. That's that's just me though. Yeah, but
1: ah yeah, I'll have to agree disagree there. I think it's like the notion that the birds, like all the tropical birds flung around and just this like, you know, valley full of sinkholes and all the water constantly changing. I love that, but as I like I feel similar to you and feeling that it isn't even if that struck out more of a chord to me, I still, it left me more disappointed that it, that it wasn't used. Like, I love the idea of the contrast between this beautiful but utterly dangerous surface to it and then this deep, dark, mysterious, uh, equally dangerous underground. And then, you you know, you get the, all these descriptions of the surface and they go underground. And it's very, you know, or very quickly uh, go through all of that one thing that i another thing that i do think is serve well in this book is detritus i wish we had a bit more of them but as i said like i really like that scene with with vimes where he's talking to him about you know troll culture i love his relationship with brick like i just think it's really sweet and, and it fits to where he says um brick, we get like a lot of points from brick's point of view and there's part where he to try to explain to him that like if he had hit commander any harder finding his teeth would have been secondary to finding a head yeah
0: Yeah, i think detritus has really really come into his own here and i think it's a real credit how how well he is fleshed out as a character considering there's very much a danger of trolls in general just being kind of background figures that don't really have personalities and i think like detritus is a real credit to like to troll kind in this book he's just like very well fleshed out Really, really likeable and great relationship with Vimes. Sorry, please continue.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's a pity. We we don't we get very little of Cheery and Carrot, uh, which is a pity. I mean, obviously the Watchbooks have such a strong and large supporting cast, it's hard to balance them all. But particularly given that they both have these distinctive relationships with dwarf kind, like Carrot being a... You know, I think they talk about how the deep downers are kind of uncomfortable with him, where they would subscribe to this view that being a dwarf isn't about your height, but they also... They don't quite trust him. He isn't dwarf enough for the Manchuri. Obviously, subverts all these generations of gender conventions around dwarves, and we we don't get a, a whole lot of them, you know, in, interacting with the uh, with the dwarves and with the with tensions in general, which is yeah, just a, a pity, really. You know, again, it's it's a lot of balls to be kept in the air when doing a watch book after we've had this many characters introduced. Another uh, thing with the characters is I think Willykins at this point, Vimes' butler, is beginning to tread the tin line from like being having surprisingly tough hidden features that we see in Jingo, you know, when he's in the army and he's kind of like a nasty drill sergeant, but he's this perfectly uh, respectable butler on, on, you know in, in every other respect, to being this sort of one-note super butler slash tug that we sort of see here and we certainly see from what I can remember in uh, snuff and I think the problem is is that like Vimes and Willikins are kinda of the same in having moved from the shades and like abject poverty and growing up rough to a place in the like how the other half lives in like the posh part of Ankh morpork Cumbercus life. Obviously Vimes is moved higher in being the um, Duke whereas Willikins is a butler. But unlike Vimes, we don't see how Willikins got there, so there's no connective tissue. So you're left with this sort of you know funny enough contrast between the sort of respectable very proper butler and this tug who would put like sharpened pennies in his black cap to headbutt people but you know that's only so funny like you keep there's only so much you can use that joke But we don't get any sense of like how is he both of these things like how did he go from being this like stone-cold killer in childhood gangs in the shades to being this you know restrained butler
0: yeah, I think like you you put it you put it best when you say at the start that it does walk a very fine line. I do think they're he's still just about managing it. What I think saves it is the the opening scene that we have with Willikins in which uh, Vimes is shaving himself and Willikins is reading him the paper, and they have these like nice little exchanges along the lines of you know um, maybe you should put the blade down while I read you this next bit, sir. They've got this little bit of banter. Um, it's yeah, as you said, it's not really explored well. I don't think he could dedicate too much time to it because we probably get to the stage of saying like why are you spending so much time on willikins how is this how is this relevant to the plot but yeah no i do take your point completely um it's kind of i i almost would have liked it to, to have gone the other way in this book that rather than to fall back onto that joke again that maybe we could maybe see um oh here here's a hobby that i took up while i was at butler school you know i happen to be like a really good painter something some other little quirk like that would have been a nice thing to explore in this book but uh, as as you said i think it is a fine line and i think he walks it okay uh just because i would have preferred that doesn't mean that wouldn't have been a disaster if they gone down that route so um not much you can say there what do you think of the entire uh knobby tawny relationship
1: i don't know I'm, I'm sort of up and down like on the one hand there there is a lot of comedy to be mindful for i love like colin's sort of hypocritical discomfort in the strip club where he's kind of appalled at the idea of like not be going out with a stripper but it's clear that he's been to like a, a lot of these places in his time to watch him before when he was in the army and and i love their efforts at trying to differentiate what's art versus what that was going, great i, I do um, like that which, you know, goes back to like. It's been many jokes made, and that the marital it's got to have urns and yeah. it. Like those are really yeah. funny, and it's it's sort of nice that you know, like in the end, they kind of break, amicably break up. But I I think that the business of for one, I I don't like how tick she is. I just think that's that feels like a real cliche of like oh she's like the more gorgeous they are, the stupider they yeah. are, you know, and particularly in that like weird, uncomfortably like childlike, stupid way, you know. Mm,
0: yeah, I. There, pretty much that entire scene. Like I just, I wasn't on board with. I also, sorry, I remembered another bit that. <laughs> everything about this subplot. It's funny that even though it, like it's humorous, I still take a lot of issues with it. But I just remembered another thing. Um, that really annoyed me was there's the point where. Sally when she turns into bats and turns back into um, a human she's like naked and when she says this to Angua is like oh yeah for some reason female vampires can't like come back with their clothes on but male vampires can this is never really explained and there's like a little footnote about like Terry like pointing this out it's like why is this always the case and like it's like having your cake and eating it too you know it's like you're drawing attention to it but it's still there you're still having this character like you know show up naked and i'm like yes you're mining it for last but like it's still it's still like a very troubling depiction and like coupled with everything else in this book like it's it's we're going down like a very dangerous road here i think
1: yeah well I, to be honest with, with the tawny stuff like i think more the, the idea of her being like Drop dead gorgeous, and absolutely stupid, and kind of like childishly so. It does have like yeah, you, you can mo- certainly mine it for negative implications of like gender stereotypes. But to me, as big a problem is that it's just like not a very good joke to use so much. You know, like there's not, there's only so like maybe if you get like one scene or one line that gets across this, you can. I'm sure he could. I'm sure if we like took one of the jokes in isolation any of the many of the jokes they're really funny but it's like when you're just getting it oh like when this is the or like her character it's yeah there's not a whole lot to it and i sort of think of the business of like like oh she's so gorgeous everyone's intimidated to ask her out almost feels like that kind of classic like that sort of like incel neckbeards self-pitying conspiracy theory of like girls don't like nice guys you know like this girl's so gorgeous that I Nobby mean, Nubby is a bad person, but it's sort of like like oh, like he's able to get her even though he's kind of undeserving in being you know so hideously ugly and in kind of being a bit like uh you know nefarious and uh, immoral in his petty t v at times because he'll you know ask her out, and all the nice guys are just too scared too
0: yeah i um I also felt like the way this plays out was a little bit out of character for Nobby as well. I can't really see him at the end saying like oh well we split up and if she ever wants a shoulder to cry on I'll be there and I'm like this doesn't really seem like the nobby that we've been like used to like I mean it's you could at a stretch say that this is the way he's developed but I don't really buy it. I kind of just feel like there's some kind of commentary being said here and it's like in a weird attempt to try and like tread like the righteous moral ground it's kind of taking characters out of their comfort zone it's um it's just it's very
1: very odd i i don't think it's as jarring that he amicably breaks it up because we do see him of course uh get in touch with the female point of view in jingo oh, yeah. when he's dressed as a woman and you know <laughs> uh, uh, gets more point of view of how they uh women's experience but i do think it's a very deliberate choice basically because otherwise it does come across as this really unfortunate act like on, on behalf of sally and, and angua and the rest of them that they're like essentially like nobby's girlfriend is way too good looking for him we've got to set her straight and you know make sure they break up uh which like again like he might be kind of it's often his uh his like petty thievery it kind of you know a uh, moral grayness is sent up in fact you've got this bit at the end where vimes realizes he's stolen the, the cube and yeah like says like oh remember that thing i i asked you to get but it's not like he's a really bad person so there sort of is this implication of them trying to set Tony straight of like, no, you're too good looking for you. Like you can't, you can't be going out with this guy. So having him break it off, I, I suppose makes it less seem like they've just ruined his chances in this happy relationship because he's, you know, whatever. If we're to go on, like, really horrible logic of relationships like oh he's a one and she's a ten or you know if it's Nobby he's probably like a minus four or something but it does it does beg it
0: does beg the question of like what why is this in the novel though like what what is the point what's it really trying to say
1: yeah well i think there's we made the comparison to jingo earlier and i think like jingo there's a certain sense of a lot of the bits in this feeling like a kind of like watch odds and sods collection, you know, like that he had these scenes or skits or storylines played out that like oh like the you know the C or D plot in one of the watchbooks can be Nobby having this, you know, mysteriously gorgeous girlfriend and it didn't fit in anywhere else, so here it goes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. We we've got uh some Twitter comments on it, so before we before we get the ranking we'll address those. Uh Wizard of the White Tulip said he's uh, very excited to have us look at this one. And he likes the, the hard line Vimes drew about never being late for little Sam's story. How good excuses lead to bad ones. Most of us won't have to make the Batman choice to never kill. But there are so many smaller things we find ourselves doing for bad reasons. And he's right. like, And I, I think I, I like that idea in general. And it's very true of Vimes' character of him being aware of how... Fragile, his whole code and ethos is. Is that like if he begins breaking it for one reason, I, I just I don't like how it plays out with the stopping traffic and, mm. um, a lot of people really love the where is my cow rant at the end. Like I've seen that like as I said, this book kind of you know a mixed reception is my impression in the Discworld fan community overall. But like a lot of people love that scene, and as I said. Like, I kind of like it in principle, like the idea of, you know, Vimes being so committed to doing this and so on. But, like, it's the way it's just played out where we kind of find out the effect of it afterwards secondhand and said the fact of it kind of it being him overcoming inner darkness in a way that doesn't feel as impactful or um, tense as, as we saw in Nightwatch. Just, yeah didn't really yeah i agree
0: completely like i mean i do really i love um the idea of vimes drawing that line for himself i think that's great i think it's possibly one of the strongest bits of the entire book uh i feel a little less uh i'm coming down a little less hard on the whole traffic thing even though i agree with you i i think it's kind of something that i can kind of forgive and um yeah the reading of the book at the end like yourself i in principle i think it's brilliant it's the way it plays out that um it it just doesn't have the impact that i would have liked for it to have i think it could have been done better uh, but then that entire coon valley bit i just feel like it's kind of sped past very quickly so um maybe a bit more focus there would have made this like a better scene for me but um, it's still it's still Pretty good. <laughs> there, there's something you can put on the blurb for the book. It's still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Steve Hill.
1: He's got a question here I think you'll like. He said, what game would you play against death for your life? Consider about your skill at the game and, worst case, the ability to prolong it. I would go Team Fortress 2 for a video game and Monopoly for a board game. <laughs> Because I'm not convinced that game can end. I don't think I've ever played a game of Monopoly to the end, so I I uh, agree yeah. with him there. But what about you? If you Oof. have to play a game against Death for your
0: life? Oh, I mean, in terms of skill, I'd say Crash Team Racing, but that would probably end very quickly. Uh, actually, do you know what?
1: Recently, I. Well, I mean, if you if you were if you were confident that you could beat Death out of it, it would end quickly and you'd presume it's hard live. to say
0: I'm not sure how good he would be like uh, driving around Crash Team Race. but <laughs> having said that I've been playing a lot of Beat Saber recently and I'm
1: pretty confident
0: Death can't move that fast with like light oh wait actually no he's pretty good with a sword I could be wrong on that one Ooh, that is a tricky one. (laughs) I guess I'd try to do like a comparative Dark Souls game because I'm pretty sure that like he'd take issues with. There's a lot of cats in that, and I think he probably gets stuck on like trying to kill the cats. So that'd be my one. I'd do comparative Dark Souls and see who could like get through it the fastest.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do not know. I mean, I think at certain points in my life, I could certainly point things. At a certain stage, I would have fancied myself to beat him at Tekken Two or Pro Evolution Soccer 2008. But I haven't played either of those in a long time. So if I died tomorrow, touch wood, I don't think uh, I'd be, you know, I'd be pretty rusty. He'd probably uh, get the better of me on it. So. For a board game, I'd probably play uh, Cards Against Humanity, both for its ironic
0: value and also because I think his skewed sense of humor would probably work against him there if we could get like an objective party <laughs> to say which is funnier. so
1: <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I, I just would i would resign myself to death i suppose <laughs> i can't think of any game i'm good enough at to, to fancy myself against a reaper um just a, a couple more when, when i um just to to run through these because this is from when i was halfway through the book when i said that i'd start reading toads uh of where its reputation is mixed what do you think of it um Wizard of the White Chu have said Night Nightwatch's a hard act to follow. I was fine with the idea of coming back to the dwarves and trolls. It's always kind of been in the background and still does cover new ground. However, like another person pointed out, could have used tightening up overall. Uh, Kate Kate Hearts at Kate Hearts, Kate underscore Arts said I think of others said of others uh, I think as others have said it could have used more editing. It didn't feel as exciting as it should have been and new characters like Sally kind of ended up going nowhere, but I am biased towards Nightwatch like many people and yeah like i sent her there to, to kind of the watch getting a vampire idea does get lost in the shuffle eyebrows ink at mini musabu uh all one word the watch books are my favorite but i always struggle with Tud. i think it could have used a hard edit i love the main plot line the reveal of the cavern at the end gives me goosebumps but a lot of the b character scenes sally angua and nobby colon feel directionless and slow I think as a woman, I'm always going to roll my eyes that the female character dislikes other female character plot lines, and the painting mystery could have been solved a lot quicker if there had been proper communication. It makes the colon Nobby plot frustrating, to, a little frustrating to read uh, and I think we're certainly wholeheartedly in agreement with her there, particularly on the mm,
0: Sally Anguist stuff. Yeah.
1: Kaz, the Sheep, at Kaz the Sheep said, I loved Hood. It's one of my top five. I would have loved to find out more about Bashfulson and the further watch dynamic, especially Angua, Shiri and Sally. But worried that carrot is slightly sidelined, and Edward Parks simply said, "Mr. Shine, him done <laughs> Can't argue there." Oh, w- one thing is, I do really love the. Um, we get two kind of, uh, I don't know what would you call them. Like at the start, um, before the plot begins, we get like a, uh, like dwarf mythology about like Tack, the the kind of dwarf god, and how he made the world. And then we get the the translation of troll pictograms about Mr. Shine. I really like the two of those. Like, they're suitably kind of mythic and mm. mysterious. And they just, I suppose, set us up for something that's playing out on a bigger scale of, like, dwarf and troll religion and mythology and culture rather than simply, like, a single crime in a single city. Um, and, like, those are the parts of it I like. Like I said, the kind of mysterious stuff with the dwarves in the mines and and vimes conversation with mr shine and to try this conversation with vimes like i like the stuff that deals with the kind of deep-seated cultural myths and ideas both of these guys have built up and how air shattering the the revelation uh within the device is going to be I, I like the mystery of the devices themselves like the idea of no one knows who made them and they found some of them you know in vulg lava and some of them that just have like bird song or nature noises and you know it it really suggests this kind of like mysterious prehistory of the disc world that we'll probably never find out about but it's fun to speculate. You know about. what
0: actually just on that point, you know what uh that reminded me of uh the devices the and the boxes is you remember um in the uh gnome trilogy the thing it reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was kind of absolutely. thinking, I wonder if the devices are actually just things. Like <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it could be. It's, a, it's a, a long time since he wrote the Bromeliad, but I uh, wouldn't be surprised if the is still kicking around his head. But yeah, I like all that. Actually, on the subject of that mystery, I think I uh, think with the uh, the Summoning Dark as much as so I like the way it's depicted is I, I said, I didn't like that scene with Vetinari, and I don't like the way he kind of spells out like what it is, albeit without being able to say it. Like when he's saying it's as old as the universe and you know they they know all of this about it. For one it makes it seem very like the Hiver. we only had a couple of Yeah, books I got ago. definitely contrasted and thing... that,
0: and I didn't really, I, it didn't compare favourably to that because the Hiver I thought was really interesting because it was so like we, we, we drew the comparison between um We Free Men and Hatful of Sky was very similar to Lords and Ladies in Masquerade. Like it was a deliberate like uh, lowering of stakes and the hiver, because just by the nature of it being called a hiver as opposed to the hiver meant that there was like oh multiple ones so the stakes are lowered but it was more interesting for that The summoning dark is kind of like underscored as this kind of like extremely dangerous decades old thing that's like you know one of a kind and then but you already know in your head this this isn't going to be much of a challenge and that kind of like detracts from the overall tone and pacing of the book as well.
1: Well, it feels like I mean you're you're a bigger horror fan than I am, so I, I don't know if, if this is something that uh, weighs on you a lot, but like it, with say horror to me, and this this book certainly has some very eerie bits. I mean that's one of its great strengths for me. But with horror in general, I generally find mystery and ambiguity much more eerie and enticing than when something is explained. But that is kind of caught up in attention that you're natural, or at least you've been kind of conditioned through all the stories you've experienced from when you were a toddler to expect some kind of resolution and explanation as you progress in a narrative whether that narrative is a book a film a game whatever so the writers generally have to give you some more you know explanation of what this mysterious force is but it can often deflate its uh, i don't know its sense of mystery and sense of just scariness for me well you know you see it in like stuff like say like the exorcist when it's this like mysterious demon possessing this little girl and her family are complete at sea and at odds to you know knowing what to do with it that to me is much more interesting than oh it's this demon named Pazuzu who's you know 10,000 years old and so on and I think there's something like that here like if if the summoning dark was just oh dwarves have been, you know have, this symbol has been part of their folklore for Millennia, you know, like no one knows where it came from. I'd be like, Oh, brilliant! But when you're like, No, it's this thing that existed before dwarves, and they've just managed to tap into it this way, and it's existed before the universe that is epic and huge. But it also p- bizarrely kind of makes it smaller to me because it shows like they figured it out, they know what well, it it's is. It's not just
0: that, it's also the fact that like we do see this from like the summoning dark's point of view as well, and it seems very like inept at what it's doing. You know, for the longest time, it's trying to find a way in. It says, I can't find a way in. And it's like, it's kind of hard to believe that this thing that, like, you know, the dwarves fear more than anything else in the world is this thing that's failing at its job for more than half the novel. I'm like, you know, I mean, the Hiver, that's why the Hiver succeeded. Because, like, he was also failing at his, or it was also failing at its job. But it's the fact that it wasn't this like epic creature like from the beginning of time. It was just a creature that could potentially do harm. That's why the stakes managed to maintain like the level of tension that they did. It was good for that. But um, for this one, it just didn't work. It's again, it's down to like how all over the place, frankly, the um, the tone of the book is. So, um, but like like you said, there are great moments. I still think that bit moment in the cell
1: when the lights go out, masterfully done. That is really really good. Yeah, so I suppose we should get to ranking it now. It's it's going to be I think a tricky one given how I uh, suppose we we're, we compared it a lot to Jingo. We've got Jingo at twenty five above Interesting Times and below We Free Men. Does this go above or below Jingo for you? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um,
0: I'd say probably below. Actually, like I mean, I had issues with both of these books, but I just remember having less issues with jingo than i did with this one um like it is kind of a throwaway story but because like maybe it's just the positioning of the book like it because it wasn't coming after uh the night night watch maybe that has something to do with it i i don't know really i i presume lower but what do you think
1: yeah i i would tend to go higher just because i think that the strengths of this in stuff like the you know the atmosphere in the mines and in like they're, they're both they're both i suppose somewhat birds of a feather in in dealing with uh boat and feeling like kind of watches odds watch odds and sods collections but in dealing with wider political ramifications that are both beyond Vimes's remit and his i suppose his capacities you know because he's a bit more knowing and savvy in this one perhaps because of the experience of jingo it makes it a bit more satisfying for me to read like he you know he him kind of coming to terms in the end with the fact that I've been used, but I've been used ultimately for the goods and trying to like intimidate the low king. But to be honest, I'm not, I don't feel too strongly about it. Like it could go above or below for yeah, me. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the
0: same. I do want to argue a little bit for going below because at least, um, Jingo had that really good relationship with, um, his counterparts. What was it? Something Ahmed? Yeah, uh, 70,
1: 71. Yeah, seven, Ahmed. 71 or 72 or oh, 71, isn't it? yeah seventy one because it's after seventy two hours they have to give them seventy two hours hospitality that's, that's it
0: yeah yeah um like i really like the relationship um between him there i, I even like uh the bits with nobby and col both books have like you know side stories with colon and nobby and I enjoyed it in jingo a lot more than I did in this one because it has the interactions with um uh Vetinari
1: and uh, Leonard Querm. yeah the, the colon and nobby stuff in jingo is like yeah, everybody. it's it's really <laughs> the bit, good. The bit the bit where Colin is meeting with all the clatchins
0: like, <laughs> Who the fuck is this this obvious guy? And he's just thinking, ah, oh. <laughs> you know, and uh
1: um, oh, blend in so I great. also <laughs> think
0: that even though like Jingo was also totally a little all over the place, it has occasional high points toward the ends that I really like. I love the concept of uh Vime's arresting uh veterinary, which um You know, even though this book we kind of said was a bit throwaway, that is something that feeds into later books, like um, in interesting ways. It's a good it's a great moment for uh, Vimes's character development of that. And also the conceit of the island. I forget the name of the one that like that they're fighting over. Oh, yeah. The fact that like that sinks back down again. um, I just I remember at the time thinking that's a really nice like little twist. And like the fact that veterinary knew this, like by checking underneath it. I like the story of Jingo basically more than this. It isn't to say that I didn't like all of this. It's just I very slightly put Jingo above it. And I'm just looking at the ones above Jingo, like We Free Men. I def- Even though I didn't care very much for We Free Men, I don't think I'd put this above it. And then I'm looking at interesting times below, and I'm like... Well, we could argue that one, but I actually quite liked Interesting Times despite its flaws, so I could even argue below that. So for the moment, just for now, I'm saying I'd probably put Jingo above this one.
1: Yeah, you've swung me on it. As I said, I could go either way, but I I think you've made fair enough arguments. So it's it's below Jingo. As to being above Interesting Times is is tough because um, Interesting Times, actually has a brilliant finale. I think it's one of the, the strong points of it. Jingo, I suppose, is something done perhaps not as satisfyingly and and uh well crafted as it could be in terms of being a watchbook but like interesting times there's a lot of really interesting ideas and concepts but the central idea behind it feels flawed in itself like um cohen and the rest of them kind of taking over being being the, the ultimate end of things and like Rin space in between with the revolutionaries where he does serve to highlight their naivete and so on but there's also a feeling of like well they don't really have any other options to liberate themselves from the horrible situation they're in so his sort of knowingness just feels kind of i don't know you know cynical and superior rather than anything revelatory um, I, there's a lot about that book I like it's very much grading on a curve here there's not like a bad book in the bunch I think out of the, the 33 we've got so far I'm
0: looking at like uh pretty much everything below Jingo at this point and I can see like I mean below that like is soul music and I'll tell you straight away now I think this is better than soul music so like there's no argument there right now the measurement here is between this and like fantastic and it's kind of down to the way like the intention behind the book versus how it's all put together and as you said like the light fantastic has some i think it has interesting ideas it's unfortunate that like there's flaws to the ideas um but i do think that the that entire book is put together so well and we're also introduced to the silver horde at that point which i think it gives it
1: sorry you mean interesting, in interesting times?
0: Time, sorry yes um not the light fantastic sorry i beg your pardon Um, uh, in interesting times yeah we uh we meet the silver horde at that point and i think that book gets an extra point just on the basis of that alone because the silver horde are such a great
1: group of like uh, characters could you use the same argument though that here i feel like what's hurting this book's uh reputation in our eyes is that it's you know we've seen the watch done better before whereas interesting times obviously introduced the horde but we'll see the horde put the much better effect in last hero um well, I mean, uh,
0: well, for one thing, I'd argue that they're, they're about on equal footing. Like, I think both of the books are good. They have different strengths. Um, but I, I, I have a bit of a soft spot for uh, interesting times in the way, like, the Horde are represented there. I think it's done really well. And, like, even though The Last Hero is great, I think you remember that, like, I wasn't quite as fond of it as you were. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, there the, the could be an argument that's just that we've seen the book so many, done so many times before. Um, but like, I mean, should we be rating it in terms of that? Like, because if a book, I mean, I'm sure that we measured uh, *Carpe Jugulum* on, on the same kind of scale as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, but that that didn't that hadn't figure quite as. Uh, I mean, that's 19th. It's it's still above a fair amount. Although obviously there's just less witch books and watch books for it to compare with and fall below. Yeah, it's a real about me with it on interesting times just because uh they're both quite messy, flawed books. I mean maybe it's recency bias here with me. I'm just feeling very uh strongly about the high points of this book in terms of you know some of the, the more atmospheric bits and the the darkness and you know some of the good characterization we do see with people like like detritus and uh to a certain extent Vimes.
0: Yeah, I think it is going to be just down to like what you took away from it, like your good feeling at this point. And I can see you're kind of leaning towards thud. I'm leaning a bit towards the light fantastic. And I think a lot of it might just be like, you know, fatigue because... Sorry, you mean interesting Sorry, I keep saying the light fantastic, but I mean interesting times. Oh
1: yeah, I just, I I keep clarifying because light fantastic is just below. So, you know, we... Yeah, I,
0: I think it might just be fatigue because like we've had, you know uh night watch so recently and like this feels so similar and it's been such a long time since we had uh, a rinse book and maybe maybe it's just me feeling bad for it because the last rinse book we we had like we set so low and so many of Rincewin's books are low which is fair like because i mean he as a character like just cannot live up to vimes he's just not as interesting but that's not to say he's completely devoid of his charms like so um and I think, like, Interesting Times was definitely, like, a high point for him. And this is definitely a low point for Vimes. Well, not a low point, sorry. Um, just in terms of his overall trajectory, I feel like it's a low point. Well, the lowest point, not necessarily a low point. <laughs> I, I'd i argue the like Fantastic. Sorry, Interesting Times. But I'm not married to the idea. If you were really pushed on Thud, I'd say that. I'll say one last push for uh, Interesting Times. I do remember we really liked the villain before the ending, like uh, when before he turned into that very stereotypical Terry Pratchett villain where he just becomes kind of helpless. The uh, ending war scene is very epic, and like we st- still haven't really come up against anything quite as epic as that since, I don't think. Like, I think at the time we argued it was the best final scene, like on the kind of Star Wars, Avenger style scale, and that was definitely worth looking into as well. And again, I'm just going to push the Silver hoard. That's going to be my last argument there. I'll leave the rest up to you.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so below Interesting Times, above Life Fantastic. Yeah,
0: I'd say this does manage to go ahead of Life Fantastic. All right, yeah.
1: Grand so. So, new number... 27. 27, uh, below Interesting Times, above Life Fantastic. That's totally... That is us, done for today. We will be talking about, which, which one's next? is. Uh, Wintersmith. In? Wintersmith, uh, yeah. I'm actually quite um, looking
0: forward to that one because in the entire time that we've been doing this, this is the first book that I actually haven't read. So really looking forward to reading that one.
1: Right, so, so we'll be back with, with Wintersmith in the meantime. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook at Radio Moorpork. You can email us, radiomorpork.gmail.com. You can leave us a rating or review on whatever, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, um, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, Podcast Attic, wherever. It always helps, helps gets the word out, helps uh, enlarge the conversation. So thank you very much once again and stay safe and stay sane in these strange, strange times. Sayonara, folks.